You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For March 20th, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Ever since it became clear that most of the world's advanced economies were turning away from coal and relying on renewables and gas instead, a narrative arose that said that the future of coal was still bright, its consumers would merely shift to developing economies like China, India, and the rest of Southeast Asia. In recent years, this expectation has become something of an article of faith, underpinning the continued warnings about coal emissions that would destroy any hope of addressing our climate crisis, not to mention being used as a justification by those wedded to fossil fuels for not taking action on climate. If China and India were just going to keep building coal power and increasing their emissions, nullifying the climate actions of other countries, the reasoning went, why should anyone else assume the cost of transitioning away from coal? But all that is about to fall apart as the nightmare, or dream depending on your point of view, of increasing coal demand in Southeast Asia evaporates under a relentless pressure of continuously declining costs for solar, wind, and battery storage. Although there are far too few policymakers, not to mention the major energy agencies like EIA and IEA who appear to be aware of it, the future of coal is fading by the day. King Coal no longer wears the crown of the cheapest new megawatt hour of power. That honor now belongs to solar and wind. And nowhere is this reality more starkly evident than in India, where a remarkable pivot away from coal has been underway for about five years now, largely due to the progressive leadership of former Minister of State Piyush Goyal. The transition is not only radically reshaping the outlook for India's energy consumption, but it is also producing one of the world's largest cases of stranded assets from previous investments in coal plants that will not be used as expected. But India's energy transformation is about much more than powering its growth with renewables instead of coal. The country has also been busy electrifying 18,000 unelectrified villages, conducting the world's largest distribution of LED light bulbs, pushing forward on the electrification of transportation, and conducting many other programs that are now more likely to make India one of the world's great success stories in energy transition than one of the world's largest upcoming carbon emitters. To help us begin to understand this complex and rapidly changing world, I invited Tim Buckley, Director of Energy Finance Studies for the Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis in Australia, to come on the show and share with us his view of energy transition in India and Southeast Asia. Tim has 30 years of financial markets experience, covering Australia, Asian and global equities, and has published many reports and financial analyses on the state of transition there. He's one of my favorite analysts on that part of the world, and it's 
it's a real privilege to have him on the show. Originally, I just planned to mostly talk with him about coal in India, but once we started talking, I realized how deep his knowledge was of the whole Southeast Asian region, and what a command he had of the data about everything that is happening there, and well, I couldn't stop. We talked for a full two and a half hours. And so I have decided to break this interview into two episodes. In this episode, we mostly talk about coal in India and the Indian energy transition. Then we'll give you a break from the topic in the next episode, which will be about coal in Colorado. But then in episode 93, we'll finish up our conversation with Tim and talk about how transition is proceeding in the rest of Southeast Asia, including China, Japan, Vietnam, and the other emerging countries in the region. So stay tuned for that. And in the new segment of this episode, we'll review some new research on stranded assets in the global coal sector. We'll take a sneak peek at a massive offshore wind farm. We'll consider the implications of a very strange energy-related tweet from Donald Trump. We'll review one of the largest battery procurements in U.S. history. And we'll note the latest electrified car and passenger ferry. But first, part one of our conversation with Tim Buckley, recorded February 10th, 2019. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Tim, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much for having me. So to start us off, why don't you just briefly tell us about your work at the Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis? Certainly. We work at the nexus between financial markets and energy markets. And that might sound a strange way to introduce our work, but it is because the energy system is extremely capital intensive and the world is investing upwards of one to two trillion dollars a year in energy investments and energy fuels. So without access to the financial markets, the energy system just simply could not work. So we are working to promote a more sustainable, low emissions energy system of the future. And so that's the primary focus of our work. And we look for markets that are in transition and in fact, leading the transition. I'm sitting in Australia, so we are absolutely leading the global transition. But I spend most of my time studying India and to a lesser degree, China and Japan, where the transition is absolutely being embraced as a huge opportunity by India to enhance energy security and progressively wean themselves off a absolutely unsustainable addiction to fossil fuel imports that's killing the currency, it's killing the banking system, and it's killing inflation. And so Prime Minister Modi has seen the enormous opportunity to embrace renewable energy as a energy security initiative amongst a number of other factors. And it just happens to also be aligned with the global need to implement effective investments to drive the Paris Climate Agreement forward. So I look at India as a very much uh, on the center stage of the world in terms of transitioning their energy market. Yeah, so that's the main focus that I wanted to bring you on the show to talk about is the energy transition in India. And I think we should maybe begin our discussion by referencing a recent citation of your work in the Financial Times, in which you actually mentioned in the news of episode 88, in which you said there is no longer an economic case for the highest cost coal plants in inland areas of India's south and west, because they have to transport coal long distances from their northeastern coal fields. Can you give us a sense of what the economics look like for various kinds of power plants in those regions of India, and why you say there's no longer an economic case? Certainly. 
India is an enormous country. As I mentioned, I'm in Australia. We're a very small country. We look globally. I think the world underestimates the importance of India and the size of India. And so it will probably enter next decade as the largest country in the world by population, overtaking China. It's already the third largest electricity market in the world. And so I mentioned size, though, in the context of your question, when you're looking at coal mining in India, the vast majority of the mining occurs in the northeast of India. Now, a lot of coal-fired power plants have been built in the south and the southwest of India, and that is upwards of 1,500 kilometres from the coal sources. And so when you look at the cost of coal mining in India, they're actually extremely low-cost mining. Their average coal sells for about US $20 per tonne at the mine mouth. But by the time you've got it to the coal-fired power plant in the southwest, you're adding upwards of $20 to $30 of rail transport costs. So you're talking about a coal price delivered of $40 to $50 per tonne, which again probably sounds relatively cheap by global standards, but the energy content of the domestic coal in India is half the global average. So you then have to double that price to get to a, say, a seaborne thermal coal benchmark price. And so you're talking about a delivered price of 80 to 100 US dollars a tonne for 6,000 kcal coal. Now, there is not a coal plant in the world that can viably compete against renewable energy in India if you've got a delivered coal price of 80 to $100 a tonne. So what does that cost per tonne translate to in terms of power costs? That translates to a power cost of $60, $70, $80 per megawatt hour, whereas mm. India is increasingly consistently now commissioning renewable energy projects, both wind and solar, at below $40 a megawatt hour. So right. the delivered cost of coal is prohibitively expensive, and you're talking about renewables being 20, 30, 40, 50% cheaper than delivered coal in large parts of India. Wow. And you mentioned that the energy content from the domestic coal in India is low. What kind of coal are we talking about here? Is this some kind of low-grade bituminous coal or what? So India almost exclusively only produces low quality thermal coal. And to give a few parameters, the average energy content of Indian coal is around three to 4,000 kcal. And the ash content, which is equally important in India, is between 20 and 40%. Whereas the international seaborne market has an energy content of around 6,000 kcal. So it's double the energy content and the ash content of seaborne thermal coal is around 10 to 12%. So Indian coal has double to treble the ash content, which means you've got enormous issues in terms of fly ash waste disposal in India. And you have to move twice as much coal as you would if you were using seaborne thermal coal because the energy content's half. I normally think of coal in terms of megajoules per kilogram, so I'm having a hard time making that conversion in my head. Is this lignite or is it subbituminous? Yeah, it's low-quality thermal coal rather than lignite coal. Okay. Lignite coal in Turkey goes down as low as 1,000 kcal, so it can be even lower. Yeah. But to all intents and purposes, we're talking about the worst thermal quality coal in the world. 
But ultimately, when you're looking at energy security, countries invariably use what they've got, and India's got a large amount of low-quality thermal coal, and they've got a huge workforce that's very low cost. So they are able to mine this coal, and their coal-fired power plants have been configured to use this low-quality coal. Right. Okay. So a recent commentary of yours observed that during the first nine months of 2018, renewable energy capacity was installed at a rate 40 times higher than the net new thermal capacity in India, which is a pretty astonishing number. Perhaps even more significantly, this was the lowest amount of new thermal capacity built over any nine-month period in India over the past decade. And the source of that data, India's Central Electricity Authority, reported that the new coal power plants that were built over the same period added very little net capacity because most of it just offset coal plants that were being retired because they were old and had reached their end of life. So what should we make of this? Does this mean that the long-awaited and long-feared and much-talked-about boom in coal power in India just isn't going to happen? Correct. That's certainly our conclusion. And how this actually plans out is going to be very interesting to see because it's actually happened faster than we were forecasting. It certainly happened faster than the Indian government was forecasting it. And it's happening many, many years or decades faster than what the International Energy Agency and the coal industry was expecting. I don't know of anybody who made a forecast that was correct here. Correct. And that's why I spend most of my time studying India. India is absolutely at the forefront of the global transition. And whereas it entered this decade, so at the start of 2010, India had plans to install and commission upwards of 600,000 megawatts of new coal-fired power plants. Yeah. 85 to 90% of those plans have fallen over and been formally cancelled or are just stale and sitting there going absolutely nowhere because they can't get the land, they can't get the finance, they're not commercially viable and their proponents have gone bankrupt. So there are a multitude of reasons. But mm. all of this means that where India was meant to be the biggest coal growth market in the world, replacing China, instead we're actually seeing Prime Minister Modi and his government embrace the opportunities in renewables instead. And so combined with the competitive dynamic that coal, particularly imported coal or coal-fired power plants from a long distance away from the mines, they're just no longer competitive. So in the nine months to December 2018, so that's three quarters of the 2018-19 financial year in Indian parlance, we have seen literally 0.1 gigawatt of net new thermal capacity added, and we've seen five gigawatts of renewable capacity added. So I've played with the numbers because the reality is when you divide five gigawatts by 0.1, you get a very big number. But bottom line, that's saying they're really only installing renewables at the moment, and the only ads on the thermal power side are offsetting the closures and certainly no one that I've seen was forecasting that India would accelerate their transition away from coal towards renewables as fast as they are currently doing. I mean, it's, you know, frankly, something that I wrote about some years ago and expected to happen, but not this quickly. <laughs> I mean, even I've been amazed at the speed. 
The speed is actually somewhat dangerous for India. And I say that as someone who is very keen to see this renewable transition emerge sustainably and the economics are supporting it. But you've got to put it in the context of a Indian economy that is forecast to grow at seven or eight percent annual GDP growth for the next decade. And so unless you're installing a huge number of renewables and by huge, I'm talking about three times how much India is currently installing, you are not going to generate enough new electricity generation to actually support the economic growth that India is targeting to deliver. And so, if anything, I think the Indian government's been caught by surprise and that is leaving them quite exposed. So they've gone from being a country that for a decade had energy, particularly electricity, shortfalls all the time. Rolling blackouts of up to six hours a day is normal in the Indian context over the last decade. In the last one to two years, we've seen India move to a net electricity surplus. Now, admittedly, only 1%, but that's still better than a 5 or 10% deficit annually, nationally. Yeah. Now, I think they're at risk of going back into deficit because the economic growth is going to be very strong and the electricity expansion is not at the moment sufficient to actually accommodate the forecast economic growth. Wow. I mean, I guess the next logical question is, where is this going? Do we expect these price trends to change? Do we expect the prospects for coal to somehow improve in India? Or are we basically just straight on the track of renewables there? I mean, you mentioned a moment ago that current prices for solar, I assume we're talking utility scale plants in India, are coming in sort of in the 30 to $40 a megawatt hour range versus coal at sort of 60 to $70 a megawatt hour. So what are the price trends here? And you know, how do you think that's going to affect wholesale power prices going forward? I think that's a really important area to analyze because Unlike in Australia, where we debate whether or not coal is cost competitive against renewables, well, we did up until the last six months, and our government still pretends that coal is the low-cost source of supply. But in India, I don't find any of that entrenched incumbent thinking permeating through the industry, through finance, or the government. So you don't have the resistance to the economic and electricity sector transformation that you have in Australia, because they're recognizing that the more you deploy domestic renewables in India, the more you're deploying low cost electricity supply, and the more you're deploying domestic sourced energy. And so just to give you a few numbers, Over the last two years, we saw renewable energy in both wind and solar, we saw the tariffs drop by 50% at the start of 2017, when the government introduced a very transparent online reverse auction process for tendering for wind and for solar. And the outcome of that was we saw tenders of a gigawatt of solar or gigawatt of wind, and you saw up to five to 10 gigawatts of projects tended in. So they were massively oversubscribed by domestic and foreign investors willing to bid very, very aggressively. And that drove the pricing down by 50% very, very quickly. I I was transfixed watching one of these live online auctions and literally the price dropped 30% below the initial bids 
over the space of a six hour bidding process. So I stayed up all night watching it. It was just, (laughs) I'm sitting there going, this is the beginning of the end of coal, (laughs) literally with those tenders. And then what we've seen is 10 to 20 gigawatts of new renewable projects, in fact, 20 to 30 gigawatts have been tendered at the same sort of pricing. So to answer your direct question, the pricing's coming in at talking US dollars to keep it consistent, yeah. 35 to 40 US dollars per megawatt hour for wind and for solar for year one tariffs. And I'll come back to that year one tariff in a minute, but we're talking 35 to 40 dollars US per megawatt hour. Mine mouth coal can compete. It's around 40 US dollars a megawatt hour. So if you had a coal plant right there at the mine mouth, it could compete. It can compete, correct. So I think we're seeing a bifurcation of the market between mine mouth coal and non-mine mouth coal, just Mm. as over the last three years we've seen it move from imported coal to domestic coal, because imported coal is the most expensive source of electricity now in India. It's sitting up at 60 to 70 to 80 US dollars a megawatt hour. It just cannot compete Mm. with renewables. Now, that doesn't mean it stops immediately, and we can come back to why, but the non-mine mouth coal is now sitting at 30, 40, 50% above renewables, and mine mouth coal is still roughly competitive with renewables, but it's in the wrong location because the major population centres of India are in the west and the south of India, whereas the coal is almost all located in the northeast. And so you're talking about either transporting the coal 1,500 kilometres or transporting electricity 1,500 kilometres to the major population centres. And the best renewable resources in India are aligned with the population centres in the south and in the west of India. So there are all sorts of reasons, but the pure mass is now absolutely accepted that wind and solar are the low-cost sources of new supply of electricity. Mine mouth coal is the next lowest. Hydro is generally in the same sort of parameters, but it takes you a long time to build hydro in India or anywhere, but in India in particular because of the population density. And non-mine mouth coal, imported coal, gas, imported LNG and nuclear at the top end of the spectrum of the cost dynamic. So they're just uncompetitive. Now, that does not mean the end of coal in India or non-mine mouth coal, because ultimately, as I started by talking about, India has an economy that's growing at 7 or 8% per annum. And so they need more electricity from all sources for now. And so they've got to actually manage this transition. How fast can you transition the grid to a variable renewable source? India is going to be challenged by the complexities of managing variable demand, variable supply with increased reliance on wind and solar. Yeah, well, as are all countries going through the energy transition right now, you know, it's it's not easy anywhere. But, you know, I got to return to your point here about there is another option here, which is that you could site, in theory anyway, more power plants near the mine mouth and then transfer the electricity over long distances. So what are the prospects for a build out of long distance transmission capacity in India? 
We've watched the China State Grid do that. I mean, they've got 12 of the world's 12 biggest high voltage direct current cable transmission systems under construction. And a lot of them have now been commissioned in the last six to 12 months to do exactly as you say. But India's built one of them. So whereas China looked at this, and China's five to 10 years ahead of India, China is five to 10 years ahead of most countries in the world. So India does not have that same far-sighted strategic plan that China has put in place. India is the world's biggest democracy. And obviously, when you're planning a multi-decade transition of energy systems, it's hard to actually get that into the thinking of politicians who are re-elected every three to five years. So India has not as yet invested in huge amounts of high-voltage direct current cable systems. It doesn't have the political planning process to do it. And also, high voltage direct current cables require land and building anything that requires land in India is problematic. So there's another aspect there, which is that the states of India control the power system. Generally, the central government has input and an increasing amount of input, but power is generally controlled by state governments and state governments have a propensity to want to build capacity in their home market. So you're seeing a lot of new coal plants being built in the north east of India, but you're seeing a lot of wind and solar being built in the west and in the south because that is their natural resource that they're relying on. It's also clean. It also doesn't have the water issues, doesn't have the pollution pressures, but it is their domestic resource of preference and it's also the lowest cost. So why would you import coal-fired power generation from 1,500 kilometres away by wire when you can actually build wind and solar in your home state? And so that's what we're seeing in Karnataka, in Tamil Nadu, in Gujarat, in Rajasthan. So I want to return to your point from a moment ago about how these new utility scale solar contracts are starting at $35 to $40 a megawatt hour. Is there some expectation that that price is going to decline over time? I think it's undoubtedly going to decline over time. And to me, this is one of the biggest issues I've had with the International Energy Agency's forecast globally for the last decade. We've seen them consistently underestimate the magnitude of deflation in renewable energy technologies. And they've underestimated the inflationary pressures in fossil fuels. So. Mm. I think it is absolutely inevitable with the rate of technology change still coming through in onshore wind, offshore wind and solar and batteries as well, you have inbuilt system deflation potential of 5 to 10% annually for the next decade. And so in that environment, when wind and solar are already the low cost source of supply and they're likely to get 5 or 10% cheaper per annum for the next decade, I just cannot see how financial institutions are going to justify funding 40-year life new coal-fired power plants, knowing that the competitor has A, a zero marginal cost of production, and B, has a run rate trajectory of 5 to 10% annual deflation for new projects. So by the time you build a coal-fired power plant, it takes you five years. And in that time frame, you're going to see wind and solar 30%, 40% 30%, 40% cheaper than it is today yeah. when you're already behind the eight. Yeah. And in fact, right. so to me, that is why this becomes a absolutely energy system disruption. It's not going to be a nice orderly transformation. It's going to be an energy disruption. 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. A study by Carbon Tracker released in November of 2018 found that 42% of the world's coal power stations are already running at a loss, and that as much as 72% of the global coal fleet could be uneconomic by 2040. The study also found that it already costs more to run 35% of coal power plants than to build new renewable generation, and that by 2030 it will be true of 95% of the existing and planned coal fleet. Continuing with Carbon Tracker's long-standing research on stranded assets in the fossil fuel sector, the report notes that where coal power does not have to survive as a competitor in a free market, such as in India, China, Japan, and parts of the U.S., it may yet survive, but only at the risk of losing competitiveness and costing the public purse. See the link in the show notes for more details on the study's methodology, as well as to their free new online tool designed to help investors, policymakers, and civil society develop economically rational plans to close coal plants and to understand the financial risk if they continue to operate. Item 2. I don't normally like to talk about things that aren't completely real on this show, which is why you don't hear me talking about technologies that aren't commercial yet, despite the endless flow of promotions for them coming into my inbox, or contracts that aren't yet signed, or projects that aren't yet operational. But I have to make an exception here to talk about what is sure to be an amazing project. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.